Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, the only show on South African radio that offers you an hour-long extravaganza of books. Today, we've got five great book reviews and another four massive interviews to keep you informed and entertained for the next hour. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and I'm looking forward to keeping you in good book company, sponsored as always by Exclusive Books. The first half of today's show is made up entirely of book reviews, five of them to be precise, and we follow that up with four big author interviews, two of which are art books, and one is a fascinating book for young adults. And we end off the show with Twanji Kalula interviewing Max Price, who you'll recognize from the University of Cape Town, and that's about his new book, which is called Statues and Storms, Leading Through the Chaos, which promises to offer some riveting insights into what's been going on in those hallowed halls. We're going to start the show with some fiction. Shirley Gurler is up first with a review of a novel called The Girl in the Eagle's Talons by Karen Smirnoff. The legacy of that smash hit The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo continues. This novel is billed as a pulse-pounding thriller, part of a series which sees its characters navigating a world of conspiracy and betrayal, old enemies and new friends, the ice-bound wilderness and global corporations that threaten to tear it apart. And I see it's a translation and that the translator's name is appropriately Sarah Death. So that bodes well if you like your thrillers all thrillery. Welcome to the show, Shirley. Never judge a book by its cover. That goes for the cover note too. So take care when you see that the note tells you that this is one of the great crime series of our time and it could not be in safer, more capable hands. So, to start off, I wasn't sure if I agree that Karin Smirnoff, a best-selling Swedish writer in her own right, is the best heir apparent to Stieg Larsson, who wrote The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She has brought out The Girl in the Eagle's Talons, and it's a long and a little long-winded read in places. But with The Dragon Tattoo's Mikhail Blomqvist and Lisbeth Salander, you're in good hands. But you do need to prepare for a new approach because the journalist Blomqvist is no longer the Millennium Magazine loner. In fact, his magazine has gone digital and into podcasts and he seems at a bit of a loss, which is okay because he's really just a bit player in this book, unrelated to the Mikhail Nyquist or the Daniel Craig who encapsulated him in the Swedish Dragon Tattoo film or its American remake. The hero of this story, however, is Svala, a 13-year-old girl going on 30, which makes her close in age to Lisbeth Salander, who has a slightly bigger role than that of Blomqvist from about midway through. Since Lisbeth, an adult, is described as 14 to 44, the two are perfectly matched in most ways. The smart, savvy, sassy Swala, who is the pivot, she is thrust onto Lisbeth's horizon when her grandmother dies after her mother disappears. Lisbeth, who doesn't really suffer from guilt in having caused the death of her half-brother, Svala's father, is not cut out for parenthood, and the dynamics between the two are not intergenerational, but strangely, almost as partners. After all, Svala can drive, and it is she who stops driving to protect Lisbeth should they be stopped by the cops. The book is up to minute in design, a wind farm or not. When a small town in the north of Sweden becomes a field of dreams for people planning to make a killing, well, not literally, but yes, it does become literal, and as these people plot to turn the terrain into an ocean of turbines, something has to give. 
Will it be the isolated property owners who won't sell? Will it be the municipal head honcho with the mysterious past? Will it be the chief of the company wanting, well, everything from women to money? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But there is always a weak link to enable some kind of chicanery, and with Lisbeth and Svala, the chink is found. Blomqvist is only on the scene because his daughter is getting married. Aunt Lisbeth is only on the scene because her half-brother's daughter's mother's gone missing. They don't even know they are in the same town. But Blomqvist's nemesis from a previous case in Stockholm is here, heading the serious crimes unit, well, sort of. But the interplay between the two of them is taut and tense. For Blomqvist, it becomes personal, involving not only the daughter to whom he has been an appallingly neglectful father, but his grandson, via whom he thinks he can make all things right with his daughter. And he does connect with the kid before he too disappears. Then there is his daughter's fiancé, the most important man in the town, with a past that is as mutilated as the fingers he lost in an accident, along with his real name. It's small-town stuff for Mikhail, nicely sarcastic and sardonic when faced with the small-town journalist and small-town minds. But crime is crime. And bikers who collect for cancer haven't necessarily changed their spots from criminal to Mr. Nice Guy. You'll recognize them from previous novels before, but their role here is also small. Eagle's Talon has all the hallmarks of a good thriller with a contemporary theme, and Lisbeth is young enough to fight another day and save Mikhail again, but I think it tries to be clever. Maybe I should just wait for the film, which will capture the atmosphere of the ice, the reindeer, and even the relatively close Finnish town, which is home to the real Father Christmas. Leanne Voicy is no stranger to our show as a reviewer, and today we welcome her back to the show to review a very interesting-sounding book. It's called Risking Life for Death, and it's by Ryan Blumenthal, who's a forensic pathologist in South Africa. He has more than 20 years' experience. Just imagine the kinds of things he's seen in that time. Although I guess you don't have to imagine it because he's brought out this book, which I'm told offers a masterclass in his forensic techniques, using real-life case studies to explain how to look for clues and traces and what an autopsy can tell you about life and death. Professor Ryan Blumenthal, in this, his second book, titled Risking Life for Death, Lessons for the Living from the Autopsy Table, offers us exactly that a masterclass in what we the living can learn from the dead. With his vast knowledge, experience and zest for learning, teaching and life, Blumenthal wants the reader to appreciate, through what he has learned during his career as a pathologist, that we do have power and autonomy and the ability to make better choices in this world which is tough and complex and impossible to leave alive. Using Locard's exchange principle as the thread which ties the entire book together, Blumenthal offers case studies, discusses biology, psychology, anatomy, philosophy and chemistry in layman's terms and gives us an epilogue which offers practical advice and tips on how to use this principle in order to create a happier and healthier personal environment. Just quickly back to Locard's exchange principle. Edmund Locard, known as the Sherlock Holmes of France, was a pioneering criminologist who formed the basic principle of forensic science itself, namely, every contact leaves a trace. Not only do we leave something of ourselves behind every time we go anywhere, but we also take something with us from that environment when we leave. Criminal investigations obviously rely heavily on this principle with things like fingerprints and DNA. Forensic pathologists use it when studying the body in front of them. 
looking to get questions answered. Electricity, for example, leaves profound physical clues which beg to be correctly interpreted. A lightning strike can leave a fern-like pattern on the chest or back, whereas death caused by live wires may leave singed hairs and severe burns on the body. Hands squeezed around a neck might break the hyoid bone or leave finger-shaped bruises or perhaps only cause burst blood vessels in the eye. The clues left by whatever caused the person to be on the autopsy table will help show what happened and give explanations. As with all successful methods, it cannot be successfully followed in a vacuum while using tunnel vision. Prof. Blumenthal gives many examples of how being open-minded, ready to listen and learn, think out of the box and get all the information necessary before having an opinion is the way to not only be a successful forensic pathologist, but also a more balanced and unafraid regular person in a crazy world. The writing style is accessible and warm, given the subject matter. The author uses an appropriate amount of humour to keep things lively, and importantly, he passes on quite complicated and technical information without losing one's interest and attention. If true crime, forensics, or indeed any of the sciences, and self-help and self-improvement books are your thing, I recommend Ryan Blumenthal's Risking Life for Death, Lessons for the Living from the Autopsy Table. His book, while being both entertaining and insightful, offers much more than the cover promises. This book is published by Jonathan Ball Publishers and is also available as an e-book. That was Risking Life for Death by Ryan Blumenthal, reviewed by Leanne Voicy here on Fine Music Radio. And if that book interests you, you can find it at your local exclusive books. And this is Norwegian Wood from the album Tessa Ziegler with Love.
Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. Beverly Ruiz Miller is up next on the show, and we're still talking crime, death, and thrilling rides as she reviews the latest from the international multi-million best-selling author Joe Nesbo. This one's called Killing Moon. Welcome to the show, Bev. Scandinavian crime novels, often termed Nordic noir, have been the rage in reader circles for years, and it's easy to spot why this is. Remote and harsh climates, dense forests, ice and snow, and strong humans, toughened by their environment, the lands of Vikings and their kin. The king of Nordic noir is Norway's Joe Nesbo. The sales figures just don't lie. He has sold 55 million books worldwide, and his gruff and emotionally fragile detective Harry Holley is the centre character of many best-selling books, the most famous being The Leopard, also a movie. Though my favourite recent book of his was The Kingdom, charting the rustic life of two close-knit young brothers living in a high mountain area before their parents die in a mysterious car accident. Now there's a new Nesbo, Killing Moon. Classic vintage stuff, and it's certainly a gripping tale. Nesbo's special talent is to slightly reinvent Holly through the many eras of his troubled life as a superb hunter of murderers, but one that takes a massive toll not only on his own life, but also tragically on those he loves. In Killing Moon, we meet up with Holly again in Los Angeles, where he has fled to in despair after valid accusations of gross negligence in the line of duty drinking on the job, substance abuse, and responsibility for the death of at least one colleague, and also the memory of the death of his late wife, Rako. In Los Angeles, Hollow realizes that with his shrinking funds, he might just be able to drink himself to death in the seedy bars, but fate has other plans. He meets a mature woman in need who reminds him of his mother, and his dis- in his decision to solve her massive debt problem, he begins to save himself just in time. Back in Norway, the police force are battling to solve the murders of two young women missing and then found dead and with troubling forensics. Holle returns to hunt the killer, in part to earn a colossal fee that he pledges to help his L.A. friend and also because he realizes that he's good for just one thing and that is catching serial killers. Nesbo has a talent for writing engrossing, unusual novels with a special style. His observation is keen, his talent for the complex interaction between characters, both thrilling and illuminating. Yet he was not always a writer, let alone such a hugely successful one. He is a former football star whose knees gave in, a musician, a reporter, and an author who preferred to write in cafes and airport lounges until covid when he was forced to write in his Oslo home. There he bought a huge and expensive table to write at, with a lovely view, but then discovered he can only write at a small table facing the wall. In an interview he said that it's easier to create a universe inside your head than be distracted by the attractive world outside, and inside his head is clearly a very good place to be. The Killing by Joe Nesbo is the 13th in the Harry Holley series, and judging by the teaser on the last page, it won't be the last. 
That's great news for us fans. And now to John Hanks, who's next up on our lineup. As always, John fills our nature book spot. Today, John is sharing with us Ecological Highlights of East African National Parks, which is by Roger Schoon. I'm told this book has excellent photographs of an intriguing landscape, which should stimulate anyone interested in our East African parks. Roger Schoon has produced a superbly illustrated and authoritative text on the geological highlights of East Africa's national parks, opening up a new and exciting angle on how East Africa's unique geology and landforms have made such a significant contribution to the region's extraordinary celebration of biological diversity. Now, if anyone's listening is wondering if the subject of geology can really be that interesting, I can guarantee that this book will have you enthralled with the accounts and photographs of geological highlights, such as the volcanic legacy that has had such an influence on what species you will encounter and why they are there. Some 70 national parks, game reserves and sanctuaries have been covered by Roger Schoon, often with satellite photographs and easy-to-read geological maps, and a summary of the wildlife in each location. Anyone planning an East African safari for the first time will inevitably want to include well-known locations, such as Kilimanjaro, Gorongoro and Serengeti. This book will make you think again. To ensure your itinerary embraces some of the dramatic landforms of the region, such as the spectacular steep-sided crater of the Odonio Rengai volcano, which rises 2,500 metres from the floor of the Rift Valley in northern Tanzania, in which was still erupting in 2013. The active nature of these giant volcanic cones can be linked to the diverse evolutionary patterns of several primates and to the early ancestors of modern humans. Other active volcanoes in the region are still being fed by highly mobile molten rock derived from deep in the interior of the earth. The landscapes of East Africa will continue to evolve and change, impacting on where plants and animals live today. As an example, the Afro-Montane forests that occur in the volcanic plateaus of the region support a number of specialized and endangered species of large mammals, such as the bongo and the giant forest hog. An evolutionary response to these dark, dense forests which have grown on the nutrient-rich soils formed from the erosion of volcanic rocks. These and other reports of rapid speciation linked to geological changes cannot fail to stimulate an interest in the geology of East Africa, a topic which has received far too little attention in the field guides for the region. The photograph of elephants inside the Kitum Caves in Kenya's Mount Elgon National Park, heading underground in search of salt, should encourage this site being on the bucket list for a must-see within the area. It's grown in popularity as a principal attraction in the region, no doubt enhanced by the belief that these caves provided the inspiration for Ryder Haggard's novel King Solomon's Mines. How this cave was formed is in itself a fascinating topic. But where this book scores for me is the encouragement given to get out and explore other geosites, as they're known, and trails in this park and in others too. For example, Kitum Cave is just a short drive from the park headquarters, in contrast to Suam Gorge in the same park, where you can see spectacular scenery and outcrops of 
ashes and agglomerates, but this is a really strenuous hike which takes a full day and must surely be worth the effort. Geological highlights of Africa's protected areas can undoubtedly add a new dimension to our appreciation and understanding of these areas, and it would be great to see this approach being introduced elsewhere in Africa. Please get a copy of this excellent production and you will see the reason for my enthusiasm. Title again, Geological Highlights of East Africa's National Parks, written by Roger N. Schoon and published by Straight Nature, an imprint of Penguin Random House, and you can get a copy for 350 rand. And now we're joined twice in a row by Philip Todras, first with a review and then an interview. The review is of a memoir published by Jakarna here in South Africa called Back to Front, in which Leon Levy chronicles his early life, family background, and experiences of political activism. Back to the Front, a memoir by Leon Levy, published by Jakarna, was recently launched. And I'm going to start by quoting, which says, There are now a dwindling number of eyewitnesses who can say, I was in Clipton where and when the Freedom Charter was adopted. I was accused number four in the 1956 treason trial, and I participated in events in the 1950s and 60s which inevitably led to police arrest, solitary confinement, and for some, torture in prison cells. We experienced dark and dangerous days during the unjust and oppressive rule of apartheid, when our cause was right against wrong, and wrong was literally a call to arms. That's quite a statement and does cover an enormous amount of the contribution made by Leon Levy and tells us of amazing times that he went through and amazing trials and tribulations, which basically it's positively heroic. But what really also grabbed me was his background, coming from a home where his father died when he was young, a twin, a mother who had to go out to work and to keep the family together, and each of those children at that stage having to contribute and help ends meet and him not having the opportunity of going for an education but having to get involved and earn money and get a job. And it is given his background that he moved into the trade union movement. We're talking about a family, and to call them communists I think is inappropriate. Communism at that time was a socialist movement. It didn't generate into what actually then did become communism and Maybe there is a need to make that distinction. But he came from a Jewish home which looked at ethics and morality and the whole concept of social justice. What so much informed him and his work and how it got to meet Lorna. And I also like the fact that one of his comrades nicknamed him Saba Taba, which means here, there and everywhere. And yes, he was here, there and everywhere, dealing in different aspects and certainly having moved into the trade union movement, being involved in the rights and the wrongs and negotiation, negotiation, negotiation. And then, of course, going through those six, seven years in the 50s, 56 through to 61, being involved in the treason trial, what it meant to him in terms of being able to earn a living, being incarcerated, having to live in prisons, uh, 90 days, 120 days, being imprisoned and having to go through all of that, but also meeting all the people he did meet during that time and how it implicated and involved him in how he did go forward. And also the difference between trying to strive for right as against trying to get involved in more activism and moving from peaceful negotiations into having to consider 
the armed struggle. So it really is a very moving account. And as I say, in terms of what he had to give up to get where he ultimately became involved is quite a story and how actually going to Britain, that exit permit, allowed him to go to Oxford University and specialise in the areas that he wanted to be involved in. And that was a real... As he puts it, he had to confront issues of civil liberties and all forms of inequality, and that really impressed and imposed on his life and the way he went forward. And then he comes back to South Africa in the early 90s and gets involved with CCMA, Commission for uh, you know, for Labour Relations and so on, and continued to make an enormously positive contribution. So a tribute to a man has done so much to contribute to South Africa at enormous expense to himself. And also a man who somehow still holds hope for the future, knowing that we will hopefully go forward and find the right way to look at things about democracy. So, Back to the Front is a memoir by Leon Levy, published by Jokana, which I would think is a very important book to get an understanding of what we went through and hopefully where we might be heading to. On the Street by David Rickey here on Fine Music Radio where we're knee-deep in our latest episode of Book Choice sponsored by Exclusive Books with me, your host, Paige Nick. And now we get into the second half of the show which is all about the interviews and we go back to Philip Todras and this time he's going to bring us a bit of the art world as he'll be chatting to the editor of a book called Clay Forms which was edited by Olivia Barrel. This is one of the first South African books that focuses on clay work which is the editor's term for sculptural ceramics. In the studio, I have with me Olivia Barrell, who has just come out with a very handsome book called Clay Forms. And I think we'd better spell that, F-O-R-M-E-S. So Clay Forms and Olivia, what got you 
focusing on South African ceramics, given your background from the Sorbonne and Chinese ceramics, Chinese China, or how do we call it? Yes, thank you, Philip. Thank you for having me. I've been interested in ceramics actually for a very long time. I did my undergraduate at the Sorbonne University in Paris in art history, and I specialized in ceramics for my postgraduate degrees. And I was very drawn to ceramics because I feel like it's a medium that's very nuanced. And after 10 years in France, I moved back to South Africa a few years ago, and I realized that we had an extremely rich tradition of ceramics in this country that had actually been quite poorly documented. And I felt that it would be the perfect place to do a book on ceramics, contemporary South African ceramics. I like the way you said you wanted to reveal the unexplored richness of the sculptural clay in South Africa. Tell us about how you looked at it, and I like the use of the word clay work. Yes, I think that what struck me a few years ago was that there was very little literature that existed on South African ceramics, namely two publications, one that dates to the 70s written by Garth Clark, which very much includes artworks and studio pottery. And then the last book was written in 1991 by Vilma Cruz and Doreen Hem, and it also includes artworks mixed with functional pottery. And I thought there was room for a publication that was purely dedicated to clay in its sculptural forms because we have so many artists working in this country and have been working for a very long time. Some of the artists in the books, namely Hilton Nell, was born in 1941. So we really have a very old tradition of artists experimenting and expressing themselves through the medium of clay. So was, what are your reasons for some of your choices of artists? As you say, it expand, extends over a long period of time, mm-hmm. but there must have been some sort of criteria that you employed and talking about Hilton in an article recently, he also doesn't like the word ceramist mm-hmm. as you know, covering and for his various reasons. But your focus on sculptural is the one thing. And how did you decide on those particular 30 artists? Yes, it was quite difficult. And I just have to say that I did over 80 interviews. And really one of the most amazing things about the project is that it allowed me to travel all around South Africa and actually discover many of these artists who've been very poorly documented over the years. And I decided that I would do a retrospective book because I did the book in two years. I wanted to get the book out. It's already 300 pages. So I decided I would stop at 30 artists. And there are a lot of artists I've left out and I would love to do further editions. But I wanted to show a retrospective. That was my main aim. So from Hilton Nell, born 1941, the most recent artist is Ben Orkin, born 1998. And I wanted to show all walks of life from South Africa. I wanted to show artists that came from all regions of the country. That was very important. All different ages, all different backgrounds. And also, more importantly, I wanted to show clay in its diversity. Porcelain, earthenware, terracotta, stoneware, all the forms of clay. So that was very important. The other thing that is quite wonderful is your interviews are so handsomely photographed. So you have a wonderful selection of works. Do you want to pick out one or two and particularly point out some of the differences and why that particularly appealed to you? Why the different types of clay appeal to me. And and the way they are worked with. And and as you say, dealing in sculptural Mm. forms, although you do say that plates can be sculptural too. Mm. Yes, I wanted to... I feel very strongly about the fact that clay is a very misunderstood medium. So the word form comes from the French form, which means an object of art, objet d'art. And I thought it's such a beautiful term, an art object. And ceramics are often very categorized, which is why I also kept it as clay, because a lot of the artworks are actually unfired, which 
doesn't make them ceramics. And I wanted to break a lot of the terminology and the norms that exist around this medium. So we categorize all artists that work with clay as ceramicists. And I wanted to sort of push back against that. So what I wanted to illustrate with the book was all the different nuances of clay, all its different forms. We've got pots, we've got vessels, we've got plates, yes, but we've also got large, massive installation works. We've got tiles, we've got clay that suspends from the ceiling, unfired clay. Um, Belinda Blinot is a very interesting experimental artist that's been working since the early 90s and really has radically pushed a new wave of clay called wild clay, which is unrefined, unprocessed. And globally, she's one of the first artists to do it. And also there are three essays by Sean O'Toole, Caitlin MacDonald and Ashraf Jamal, Mm -hmm. all very well-known South African Mm -hmm. art historians and and writers. So you've really put together a very handsome book, which we compliment you on, and we look forward to knowing what the next edition is going to be. So we've been speaking to Olivia Barrell about clay forms, which she is the editor of, and a very handsomely illustrated book as well. You'll enjoy. Thank you, Philip. And we're not done with the art book world yet because Melvin Minar is joining us next for another art book interview. This one is with Mari Lekanidis Arno, the editor of a new book called Bruce Murray Arno, Into the Megatext, published by Print Matters Heritage with the Villa Lagordi Centre for Sculpture. Over to you, Melvin. My guest is Marie Lekanidis Arnott, and we're going to talk about a few things. But first, South Africa's art history is often a fading, deserted territory, but sometimes something happens and reminds us of the great talent of artists' past. A new book about the supremely endowed sculptor Bruce Arnott is exactly such an amazing and cheerful event. Bruce Murray Arnott, Into the Megatests, to give the whole title, is to say the least a most welcome biographical document of the life, philosophy and distinguished public career of an artist which Cape Tonians and the rest of the country got to admire for many years. At the height of that career, he was making the most original eye-catching public art and teaching, most influentially at the UCT Michaelis School of Art. He died in 2018 at the age of 80, and his widow, Marie Lekanidis Arno, took up the task of his cultural legacy. This beautifully produced book, edited by her in collaboration with Sven Christian, is the glowing result and a treasure for all of us. Welcome, Marie. Thank you, Melvin. The legacy of an artist, especially one as prolific in thought and work as Bruce Arnott, is inevitably in need of careful curatorial management. It really is a big deal and determines to a large degree his heritage. Tell us about the inspiration of the job first and then the process you undertook to put it all together. Bruce wanted to publish a photographic catalogue that he put together with Kim Gurney and then at the last minute in 2010 he decided not to do it because he felt the form wasn't right. And then in 2015 he asked me to project manage doing a book. Um, unfortunately, for all sorts of reasons, like roads must fall and fees must fall, I wasn't able to do anything like that, um, teaching a higher education myself. And then the inspiration came in 2019 when I went through a pile of boxes that Bruce had left behind um, that were full of primary and secondary sources to do with his long career. I mean, I'd been married to Bruce for 28 years and I knew about his work, but I didn't know about all of it. 
and the depth with which he did everything. It was quite incredible. So, and I think being in a curatorial position at the South African National Gallery for 10 years made him put away everything very carefully. He was well trained. That's how it started. It also became very clear that this book, there was so much to deal with, way beyond just him being an artist, but uh, an educator and a curator um, and a designer, particularly with his public works that were commissioned. And so I thought of a collaborative work would be the best thing to do. So that's how it progressed. What I, what I particularly liked about the book, and beyond the fact that it's the most elegant publication, is how accessible and readable it is. You know, there are very few art-speak terms that, you know, sort of it hits you as a too academic, but the narrative is quite clear and it's often warmly personal. I take it that was your intent, really. Yes, I'm glad that you say that, Melvin. It was <laughs> absolutely my intention. Um, I really believe that Simple things and complex things should be written clearly and simply. If they're well understood, that's how they are written. Um, but other than that, I think the the design of the book, the actual object you say is elegant, it reflects the person and the work. So that was also intentional. And the structure into three sections, I think, makes it much easier for readers to navigate. The first section um, is written by a range of authors delving into different parts, different aspects of Bruce's work. And the second section contains Bruce's own writing about his views on life and his work mainly. And the third section contains the catalogue that wasn't published, but in fact augmented with more works from 2007 to 2018, which weren't in the original. And importantly, there's a visual timeline to contextualise the different sections um, that contains um, newspaper cuttings, photographs, sketches, small little bits written, etc. Overall, um, Bruce's work has a strong link to the theatre and theatricality, uh, which I particularly like. Where do you think it comes from? I agree with you. Mm. With his personal works and his public, a lot of his public works. With the public works, I can think of three immediately that were commissioned by architects for new, newly built theatres, um, like the Baxter Theatre, which was his first commission, Sphinx, in 1977, and then the Saint Duplessis Theatre in Bloemfontein for the foyer. There were four um, sculptures that represented music, opera, dance and drama. And then also in 86 for the last one, which was in the Playhouse, um, the Regency Punch. It's always a very serious question of what happens to the work of an artist uh, after he or she had died. Uh, do you have any plans to consolidate uh, that which is not like those sculptures that you talk about in the public domain? In other words, those are not in, still in private or in your possession. Any plans for that? It is indeed a serious question, Melvin, uh, and an issue that will have to be dealt with at some point. It will need funding and work by many experts in the field to sort this out. At the moment, other than my regular job, quite recently I was busy with the production of the book and now to making people aware of it. I think the starting the process with this publication has been important. And I would just like to say to those of you who are interested in art, in the relationship of language, art, design and science, 
in sustainable living and equality and the diversity of the creative continuum, you will find some answers in this book. It will also no doubt lead to many more questions. <laughs> no doubt. Thank you very much, Mary, for coming into the studio. Thank you so much for having me here, Melvin. by Marta Gomez here on Fine Music Radio and you're tuned into Book Choice with me, your host, Paige Nick and our show is, as always, proudly sponsored by Exclusive Books. If you've missed any of the books or authors we mentioned on today's show and you'd like a memory refresher, you can download the podcast of today's show as well as all our previous shows from fmr.co.za or you can find them on our FMR app which you've hopefully already downloaded from the App Store. Right, we have two more interviews to go. It's such a packed show today, so let me get on with the show. Vanessa Levenstein chatted to an old show regular, Leslie Beek, about a book she's just brought out called Time Trackers. If you're a fan of the Ruth Galloway mysteries by Ellie Griffiths, then you'll love a good archaeological dig. The Time Trackers is just that, only it's for a younger audience and set in Tankwa Kuru. And while it's a kid's book, 
I found it informative. I never knew that Tanqua has stone tools that perhaps date to 50,000 years ago. Joining us today is former Book Choice reviewer and the author of The Time Trackers, Leslie Beek. Welcome. Thank you, Vanessa. Your story is about three groups of people, the archaeologists, the residents of Tanqua, and then the ancient hunter-gatherers. Was it a tough job putting it all together? It was, and I think the only way to do it was to have it as three stories. The third group are, are early people, very early ancestors of humans, and it's difficult to tell a story about people you can't really communicate with and read about, so that part was a bit of a challenge, but the other two groups were the archaeologists and a child who represented the children in the age group I'm writing for, which is from 12 up to about 15. You did a sterling job of pulling them all three together because you found the humanity in everyone. Do you want to talk a bit about your collaboration with the archaeologists? Yes, it's been an ongoing project for about 10 years. And many of my friends happen to be archaeologists. And we've talked for a long time about the idea of doing this combination of fiction and non-fiction. And it's really wonderful to see it happening. We have people in America, we have people in Europe, we have people in South Africa who act as fact-checkers and advisors who also read the book from a readability point of view. And then we work a lot with the children that we reach to and test all our materials with them as well. The end product really is proof of the hard work and research and joy that went into creating this book. Now, here's a lovely tie-in. On the 14th of October, Vox Cape Town is presenting a choral celebration called Timeless Whispers. And after the morning performance... FMR presenter John Woodland is going to chat to you about the Time Trackers and the Children's Book Network. What is the Children's Book Network? Well, it's it's a network of friends and people who work together to promote the idea of books and reading to children. We find, you know, they, they, they start by reading and learning ABC. They can read Ka'ata, they can put the sentence together, the cat sat on the mat, but then their imaginations are not really stimulated. And when they change to learning in English in grade four, it's very difficult for teachers and parents to find material that's suitable. So we work with children in workshops and we trial uh, specially written material that I put together for them. And it's very much interest-driven rather than uh, the structure of reading. It's about reading something that's going to hold your attention. And the... The aspects of early and deep time are not really covered much, so it's quite a fascinating uh, aspect of, of, of non-fiction for them to become interested in. I found this book fascinating, the way you um, incorporated fiction and non-fiction. Um, do they all follow a similar pattern? You tell the story, if there's a noise, it's me flipping through the book. And then you have at the back, you have find out more about the Karoo archaeology, stone tools. Do they all follow this format? More or less, yes. I think we found that children who are maybe over 11, they really like nonfiction because they want to know more. They're very interested. They're at the stage where they want to grow their knowledge base. And if there's a story involved that leads them into it, they become interested before they really even think about it. And they read. And the more they read, the better they can read. So it, it fulfills two things. It stimulates, well, three really, stimulates imagination, gives them some more general knowledge and promotes the idea that reading is useful and not just for tests, but for yourself. 
mm. reading on your own, increasing your awareness of everything. Where can we purchase the time trackers? And where can we also find out more about the Children's Book Network? The easiest way at the moment would be through our website, which is www.childrensbook.co.za. And all details about the book are on there. Leslie, you're going to be speaking on the 14th of October at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church after Vox's performance of Timeless Whispers at 11 o'clock. And people can purchase tickets through Quicket. And you will also be signing books. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, we will have the books by then. The ones I have at the moment were just uh, advanced proof copies. But we will have actual books for sale. So that's going to be quite exciting as well. And proceeds will go to creating more of our reading toolboxes, which this book is part of. Well, on a fantastic book and a fantastic project. I was speaking to Leslie Beek, author of The Time Trackers. The website again for the Children's Book Network is childrensbook.coza. And lastly, but never leastly, this one is going to be a goodie. Twanji Kalula is joined in the studio by Max Price to discuss his new books, Statues and Storms, Leading a University Through Change. This book offers a gripping insider's account of Max Price's tenure as Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town during a transformative period in South Africa's higher education history. There are two jobs I probably wouldn't take. Um, I would not want to be the CEO of ESCOM and I would not want to lead a university in South Africa. Both jobs seem to attract quite a bit of danger. Dr. Max Price is Vice-Chancellor Emeritus of UCT and led the university through the Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall movements. In his new book, Statues and Storms, he writes about this defining period of his life. What made you decide to write this book now? Well, I decided to write it as soon as I ended my term. It just took me four years to write. Um, I wanted to write it because while the protests and uh, turmoil, the storms were on the go, I did not really feel I had a chance to present my side of the story of what was going on. I couldn't give people insight into what lay behind the decisions we were taking. And many of those decisions were controversial and criticized, but it wasn't uh, feasible or appropriate to defend them. Um, And so I wanted an opportunity to do that. But also, uh, I think it was a very important watershed period in higher education for the country nationally. You'll remember this wasn't just at UCT, it was all the universities in the country, the fallist movement affected. And I think universities have changed permanently and mostly for the better as a result. So as an insider, as an actor in that history, I wanted to um, contribute to the archive of that period because I think it will be researched and reflected upon and my perspective, it's only one perspective, but it's a perspective that I think would, was important to put down for the record in some detail. So it's uh, partly um, a memoir, it's partly a history, uh, and then it's also partly a reflection on some of the enduring themes which universities are dealing with all over the world and which came up, which surfaced during that period. And the interesting thing I found as I read the book was that you were a student activist yourself. So you kind of resonated and there was a time you write about where you were quite worried about what you perceived as apathy in terms of political action. Um, and then on the other hand, it's the case of be careful what you wish for because, you know, you're put in quite hair-raising situations and there were some difficult personal criticisms and attacks you had to face. How did you kind of balance those two tensions at the time? Yep, so one of the possible titles I contemplated for the book was Crossing the Barricades or Both Sides of the Barricades because I 
as you say, was a student activist. I was an SRC president at WITS when I was a student. And throughout my life, I have believed that uh, students are engines of social change. Um, Students are in a peculiar position where they have very few responsibilities. They don't have to worry about children, jobs, earning a salary. Uh, They have to get through their degrees, but they have a freedom uh, to challenge the establishment. And I think that's their duty, and I think society is generally better off as a result. Uh, Suddenly, when I became vice-chancellor, I found myself on the other side of the barricade, on the establishment side, being challenged by students, but often being sympathetic to the issues that they were raising and believing that they should be raising issues and should be uh, protesting, etc. So as you say... Um, firstly, I had that tension of um, the discomfort of now being accused of being conservative establishment, sometimes racist, etc. But the, when I first started in 2008, for the first seven years of my term, of ten, my term was 10 years, for the first seven years, there were no protests. And the students seemed to me apathetic. They seemed to me primarily interested in just their own careers and in material progress, um, The government was already, I mean, doing all sorts of things. Uh, Corruption was already manifesting the problems of controlling crime or the criminal justice system and its failings. Uh, The government tried to pass a bill, a secrecy bill, uh, to restrict access to information, which would have affected universities as well. And I found I was frustrated that the student bodies were not uh, up in arms about these things. And part of the reason was because they were dominated by ANC uh, youth movements, the ANC Youth League, SASCO, Young Communist League, which were all closely aligned to the ANC and were still in a phase where they were unwilling to challenge the the ruling party and the government. And so, as you say, I often would make speeches uh, urging them to be more activist uh, and not to be so apathetic. And then in 2015, that all changed and it erupted in protests and ultimately a turmoil, which I think some of which was destructive. And, uh, yeah, that's what I had wished for did come true. Not quite in the way I'd hoped, but and you've what had you a, get. You've had the benefit of hindsight, I guess you say, four years since the end of your term to kind of reflect on that period. And what are some of the enduring lessons that you hope people take away from the book? There are different audiences that the book is written for, and I expect that the different audiences will take away different messages, right? So one of the audience is the audience of the white South Africans and white people globally because the issues of Black Lives Matter, problems of institutional inclusiveness are very strong in the UK, in the West, in English language universities all over. I can't speak for for other, other universities. And I describe my personal journey, the trajectory of that journey, in getting a better understanding of the experience of black students and staff at the university and why they felt like they were being made to, why why it was they felt that they were not good enough to be in the university, why they always felt they were outsiders or second-class citizens or that the institution was being paternalistic towards them um, or that they just didn't belong because they didn't see a culture around them that they could identify with. Um, And so many whites uh, who know the English liberal universities who are alumni can't understand that because they see the universities as having been liberal opponents of apartheid during the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and having provided protection for black students and having been strongly anti-apartheid as well. So the idea that they would be seen as racist or as unwelcoming to black students, it's hard to make sense of that. And what I've tried to do, I hope in the, through reading the book, they will 
have a better understanding of why black students have felt so angry about the culture of the institution. That's one audience. A second audience with different takeaway message would be university leaders and leaders of business about how to manage transformation, um, how to make tough decisions. I describe lots of vignettes of tough decisions um, and suggest why they are tough. Sometimes they're tough because they're multiple stakeholders. Sometimes they're tough because there's so much uncertainty. Sometimes they're tough because they're complex decisions. But the ones that I focus on, especially in the book, are decisions that are tough because there's a moral dimension that steers you in, in, into one conclusion, but consequences which would not serve the institution's interests. And how do you weigh those up and still be honest and true to your values? Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Statues and Storms by Max Price was published by Tafelberg and retails for 360 Rand. And so that brings us to the end of the show and leaves me with just enough time to thank Mzuma Keta for pulling the show together and to thank all our reviewers, our authors and interviewers, and of course our publishers who send us lots of lovely books and most importantly, our sponsors' exclusive books. If the book you seek does truly exist, you'll find it at your local exclusive books. Until next time, which is Tuesday two weeks from now, happy reading.